No regrets. No remorse. Made you really believe in the concept of evil as a palpable thing. This could be me. This could be me and my family at this rest stop where you think it's the safest place in the world on the interstate. And you're kidnapped and five minutes later, 10 minutes later, 30 minutes later, you and your family are dead, lying in a ditch, run over. They are around them and shooting them and enjoying themselves. Well, I just don't see how you get any more evil. He says, I'm sorry I have to do this to you, but he said, everyone stay calm, we're just going to take a little ride, no one will get hurt. And I knew somebody was going to die. So I walked over in front of the family, and, and I told them that I couldn't stop him from killing someone. Please don't let him hurt the kids. Please give me the kids so he won't hurt them. He ran up to her and shot her. When he came back, he was laughing. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. I showed emotion. The following episode is not suitable for those under the age of 13. Viewer discretion and parental guidance is advised. Before we delve into this case, I'd just like to give a massive thank you to the people over at Surfshark for sponsoring this episode. Even with the world currently on lockdown, it doesn't mean that your location has to be. With Surfshark, you can never run out of content to watch. Surfshark is a VPN service that allows you to easily change your location, which gives you access to a variety of Netflix libraries from different countries around the world. The show or film that you want to watch not available in your country, simply switch your location. And you can do that on every single device that you own as Surfshark allows you to use one subscription on an unlimited amount of devices. You know just as well as I do that some of the things that we Google when researching cases can be considered a little bit strange. And the beauty of Surfshark is that it hides your personal information and your searches from prying eyes. So you don't have to worry about one day finding yourself on the FBI watch list because you were researching your favorite pet case. I also use Surfshark to access news sources that have restricted access to just their country, meaning it allows me to research deeper by pretending to be in the case's location. And just for you, Surfshark has given us a discount code, Joshua, to get 83% off your subscription, along with an extra three months for free. Surfshark also offers a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's absolutely no risk if you're unsure about whether or not you need a VPN. You can find a link to get your Surfshark subscription at the top of the description or in the pinned comments below. Now, back to the case. Vidar Lilliard was born on the 10th of May in 1962 in Bergen, Norway. At the age of 23 years old, Vidar decided to leave Norway 
and moved to the United States in 1985. He settled in Miami, Florida, where he met Delfina Zelia. Delfina had been born on the 26th of March 1969 in New Jersey to parents Felix and Lydia. At some point after her graduation from school, she moved to Miami, Florida. Vidar and Delfina had both met during their involvements and practices as Jehovah's Witnesses. The pair soon began dating, and four years later, on the 3rd of February 1989, Vidar and Delfina got married. The following year, in 1990, the couple welcomed their firstborn child, Tabitha, into the world. And within a few years, the couple would welcome their second child, Peter, into the world, completing their family of four. By 1997, the family had relocated to Knoxville, Tennessee, leaving Miami to get away from what Vidar described as violence in the streets, moving to protect his family. Vidar found part-time work as a busboy at a Holiday Inn in Knoxville, and the family barely scraped by. Money was tight, but the love that they had for one another was all they needed to make it through the difficult times. They further relied on their worship as Jehovah's Witnesses, using their faith and belief in God to guide them. On Sunday, the 6th of April 1997, the family travelled to attend a one-day assembly of Jehovah's Witnesses in Johnson City, Tennessee, at the Freedom Hall. The convention at Freedom Hall consisted of biblical teachings and talks, and was one of many Jehovah's Witnesses assemblies that the family had attended as part of their faith. After the convention had come to an end, Vidar, who was 34 years old, Delfina, who was 28 years old, their daughter Tabitha, who was six, and their son Peter, who was two, all climbed into the family's van and began to make the journey back to Knoxville. On the journey back to Knoxville, the family decided to stop at a rest area picnic stop alongside Interstate 81 so that they could pick up some snacks and use the lavatory and have some food. Little did the family know, this decision to stop at the rest area would tragically seal their fate. A group of six teenagers had also stopped at the rest area. Jason Bryant, Natasha Cornett, Dean Mullins, Joseph Risner, Crystal Sturgill and Karen Howell. The group, whose ages ranged from 14 years old to 20, had met up in the hometown of Pikeville, Kentucky, to travel to New Orleans in Louisiana. Karen Howell was born on the 25th of September 1979 in Delaware, Ohio. Her family had moved to Kentucky when she was just three years old, along with her older brother, who was eight years older than her. Unfortunately, Karen's parents divorced when she was nine, due to the fact that her mother was a Christian and her father was not something which likely heightened tensions within the family home. The disagreement on religion was their official reason for the divorce, though Karen's childhood was filled with violence and severe fights between her parents. Karen was unfortunately allegedly sexually abused by her uncle and a cousin between the ages of five and ten, something which heavily impacted her views of relationships and intimacy. As a result of this, by the time Karen had turned 13, she had begun to self-harm. This ultimately led her to try to take her own life on four separate occasions, twice through severing her wrists and twice through overdosing on drugs. After her parents separated, Karen went to live with her mother. Now Karen and her mother had frequent fights, with Karen being constantly rebellious, breaking all the rules that her mother had set, barely trying at school, using illegal substances, and running away on multiple occasions, and developing this interest in the occult. She only lived with her mother up until the age of 14, with Karen moving into her father's place after she had finished her first semester at high school. 
Karen's relationship with her father was practically non-existent. They barely spoke to one another and just coexisted. Karen's obsession with the occult saw her begin to use a Ouija board frequently and begin automatic writing. Before Karen had moved in with her father, her mother had actually found some of Karen's automatic writings and had given them to her local minister, who then attempted to cast out the demons from Karen. Karen would further try to use love spells to get boys to date her and claim that she could hear voices. Though, after just four or five months of living with her father, Karen did end up moving back in with her mother. Karen didn't reflect on this time living with her father negatively. However, it's not hard to imagine how a lack of support might have added to Karen's rebellious behaviour. She'd become sexually active by the age of 15 and had begun experimenting with more illegal substances such as alcohol, marijuana, hashish, shake, LSD, PCP and cocaine. Karen used LSD on 14 occasions, causing her to hallucinate due to the strong effects of the hallucinogenic. Out of those 14 trips on LSD, Karen claimed to have only had two bad trips. On one occasion, she tried to chew through her friend's arm, and on another, she sat unable to move, alone on the floor of the bathroom for hours on end. Karen would end up switching high schools three times before, at the age of 16, she would eventually drop out. With the help of her sister-in-law, Karen then began to study for the GED so that she would have the qualifications that would provide her good job prospects. It was during her short stints at high school that Karen met and became involved with Natasha Cornett and Joseph Risner. Joseph and Karen's friendship also progressed further than friendship, with the pair dating as Karen turned 17 years old. Karen and Natasha both shared a common interest in the occult, and both claimed to have been able to hear voices. Karen further claimed to have visual hallucinations of snakes, spirits, and demons, even when sober. It is also claimed that Natasha and Karen could communicate telepathically with one another, but we'll delve into this whole occult and supernatural aspects later on in this video. Natasha Cornett had been born on the 26th of January 1979 in Betsy Lane, Kentucky. And as with Karen, Natasha had a difficult childhood, she had been born as a result of an extramarital affair by her mother, and it wasn't until Natasha was five years old that the true identity of her biological father was actually exposed, and this saw her parents, her mother, and non-biological father divorcing. Natasha had achieved straight A's during her time at elementary school and was seen as a good student, polite and conservative in the way that she dressed, though by the sixth grade she had begun to self-harm something which she would continue to do to herself more and more frequently as she grew up. She ended up dropping out of school before she had completed the ninth grade. At the age of 13, Natasha had begun to engage in sexual relations with other people. Natasha had no history of employment by the occasional babysitting job. By the age of 14, she had already been arrested for stealing a box of checks and for forgery-related charges. As a result of those charges, Natasha was sentenced by the juvenile courts to just one year of probation. She was then arrested for a second time after assaulting her mother and threatening to kill her with a knife, though Natasha's mother dropped the charges. Natasha then went to live with her father, and while she was under his care, she attempted to commit suicide by slashing her wrists. And at the age of 14, she ended up being hospitalised for 14 days to undergo psychiatric care. Natasha ended up being diagnosed with severe depression, manic depressive, and bipolar, 
for which she was prescribed medication and, after discharge, was put into an outpatient treatment programme for four months. At 15 years old, she entered the Big Sandy Impact Programme, which was a treatment programme designed to assist children through their education and to cope with family issues or a difficult home life. Though Natasha soon dropped out from the programme, and her use of illegal substances began to become more and more frequent. She began dating a boy called Steve Cornett, who would join her in the illicit lifestyle, and on Natasha's 17th birthday, Natasha and Steve Cornett got married, hence Natasha having the last name Cornett, taking it from Steve. The wedding ceremony itself was described by some as being satanic, with a couple both donning gothic clothing and having their bridesmaids chained together. The marriage only lasted 10 months before they divorced, which sent Natasha into a depressive spiral. She ended up moving to New Orleans, where she lived on the streets with a girlfriend. Though, after an unknown period of time, Natasha's mother moved her back into her home. The relationship between Natasha and her mother quickly deteriorated, though, and at some point during all of this, Natasha became good friends with Karen Howell and her boyfriend, Joseph Risner, through their shared interest in witchcraft and the occult, and also through high school and mutual friends. Natasha and Karen Hall would actually end up moving in with one another, and as Karen was dating Joseph, Joseph spent a lot of time at their place. Joseph Risner was born on the 13th of October 1976 in Hazard, Kentucky, to his mother Mary and his biological father Christopher. Joseph's mother and father had been married briefly, but had divorced before he had been born, and his mother Mary would go on to marry twice more since. Joseph actually had a pretty good relationship with both of his stepfathers. He had been just two years old when his mother married Ray Risner, who Joseph would take his surname from. Though never formally adopted by Ray Risner, Joseph would still refer to him as his dad, and the relationship between the two was very positive. Joseph and his mother and stepdad lived in Columbia, Kentucky, which is where Joseph went to school and began his academic career. And Joseph did well at school, showing passion for Little League Baseball and a deep love for dogs. In August of 1986, Joseph's family relocated to Georgia, which is where Joseph began the fourth grade. Joseph's stepdad, Ray, started up a construction business in the local area, which was somewhat successful. And during the summer holidays, Joseph would work for his stepdad on various construction sites for $3.50 an hour. It was this experience working on construction sites which would provide Joseph with a solid work ethic. It was also around this time when Joseph's stepdad, Ray, began to use marijuana, alcohol, and cocaine. Joseph's mother also began to use marijuana and cocaine with Ray. The relationship between Joseph's mother and stepdad began to break down, however, with his stepdad actually cheating on his mother with one of his mother's friends. All of this ended with the couple separating in early 1988. The separation upset Joseph deeply, who was 12 years old at the time, as he really liked his stepdad. Though one year later, in 1989, Joseph's mother and Ray reconciled and began seeing each other once again. Joseph's grade had begun to fall dramatically at school, which resulted in him failing the seventh grade. And by the age of 14, he had moved back to Kentucky with his mother to live with his auntie. It was around this time that Joseph became involved in the Pentecostal church as he began to explore religion and his own beliefs and faiths. Joseph's mother and stepdad divorced officially in 1991, and any contact that Joseph had with his stepdad Ray ceased, likely due to the environment he had been in when he lived with his mother and stepdad as they used illegal substances, Joseph first began experimenting with drugs when he was just 10 years old. He started with marijuana and even tried LSD at the age of 11. 
Joseph had sexual relationships with two of his babysitters by the time he was 12, which by the way is a literal rape, and just as he had done with his 7th grade, Joseph failed his 8th grade and was required to retake the year. It is reported that Joseph felt rejected by his stepfather Ray due to him effectively cutting him off entirely. This heavily influenced Joseph's appearance, seeing him don long hair and piercings and a more gothic presentation. In 1992, Joseph's mother began to take classes at a community college in the hopes of furthering her education to ascertain better job prospects. It was at this community college that Joseph's mother met a man called Larry Castle. Larry and Joseph's mother Mary would go on to get married the following year in October of 1993, and the relationship between Larry and Joseph was positive, with Joseph even calling Larry Papa. The family of three, though, regularly smokes marijuana together. Drug use within the family home was frequent and almost as standard. Despite this, Joseph's grades Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. School began to gradually improve by the 10th grade. As the winter of 1993 came around, not long after Larry and Mary had married, Joseph's family moved yet again to Scissorock, Kentucky. Joseph would finish his 10th grade at the new school in Scissorock. Then, in the summer of 1994, the family moved again, this time to Ival, Kentucky. At the age of 18, Joseph began his 11th grade at Betsy Lane High School, which is where he met Natasha Cornett, Karen Howell, Dean Mullins, and Crystal Sturgill. It wasn't long before Joseph began dating Natasha Cornett, despite his mother's protests. Joseph's mother disliked Natasha as she thought her to be disrespectful though she needn't worry as the relationship between Joseph and Natasha was short-lived. After they had broken up, Natasha and Joseph maintained a healthy friendship with one another, no hard feelings. Joseph then began to date Karen Howell in early 1995. Joseph was 18 years old at the time and Karen was just 15 years old. That relationship also didn't last very long with them breaking up at some point in the next few years. On the 25th of April 1995, Larry Castle, Joseph's new stepdad, was involved in a serious car accident which resulted in the death of the driver of the other car and caused serious injuries to the passenger. As a result of this, Larry pled guilty to charges of reckless homicide and second-degree assault. This devastated Joseph and his mother completely. Before any sentencing could come about, in June of 1995, Joseph enlisted in the army, though his military career was short-lived as he was discharged after testing positive for marijuana. In the late summer of that same year, 1995, Joseph moved back to Leslie County, Kentucky to finish the 12th grade, and in his first semester, he achieved good grades. 
However, he ended up withdrawing from school in March of 1996 on the grounds of family problems due to his stepfather's conviction. In 1996, Joseph moved in with one of his friends and attempted to re-enroll at Betsy Lane High School, but was rejected due to him now being 19 years old. This didn't stop him though, and he actually obtained his GED on the 29th of May 1996. Following that, he moved back to live with his family in June of 1996. In August of that same year, Larry Castle, Joseph's new stepfather, was sentenced to five years in prison. Joseph and his mother visited Larry nearly every day in the prison he was sent to. They were completely devastated. Despite this massive blow to his family, Joseph decided to apply to Mayo Regional Technology Centre to study in September of 1996, for which he was actually accepted. His grades during his first two terms were really good, with A's, B's and C's. Joseph also made some new friends during his studies, though he continued to go visit his friends from Betsy Lane High School every weekend, Karen, Natasha, Dean and Crystal. As he began his third term in January of 1997, Joseph began dating Karen Howell again, who was now living with Natasha Cornett. Joseph claimed to have been deeply in love with Karen. Natasha Cornett had begun dating a boy called Dean Mullins, who is the fourth young adult in our group of six. Now, I'm not going to go into vivid detail about the backstories of Dean, Crystal and Jason for simplicity's sake, but they all experienced similar childhoods and relationships to illegal substances, as did Karen, Natasha and Joseph. They all had very similar backgrounds. Dean Mullins was born Edward Dean Mullins on the 26th of January 1978 in Harold, Kentucky. He was 19 years old by the time 1997 had come around. Crystal Sturgill had been born on the 13th of March 1979 in Harold, Kentucky, and had been 18 years old by the time 1997 had come around when she had begun hanging out with the others. Crystal was actually a really close friend of Dean Mullins. Our final member of the group of six that came across the Lilliard family that April Sunday in 1997, as they came back from the Jehovah's Witness Convention, was Jason Blake Bryant. Jason was born on the 18th of July 1982 and was the youngest of the group, being only 14 years old by the time he came across the Lilliard family. On the 6th of April 1997, the group of six friends had come to their wits end at the state of their lives. They were fed up of the poverty, the lifestyle, the constraints they were in. They wanted to start afresh, go somewhere new, begin to live their lives. And so they decided that they'll all get into Joseph's car and drive to New Orleans in the hopes of starting a new chapter together. That morning on the 6th of April 1997, the group stopped at a McDonald's for lunch, which Karen paid for with some of the $500 that she had stolen from her father's house. This may all seem quite glamorised and quite positive, but the truth of the matter was far, far darker. The group had acquired two guns, a 9mm and a .25 calibre pistol before leaving Kentucky, and they knew before they'd even set off that Joseph's car wouldn't last the entire journey to New Orleans. It was too old and too small. They knew that they'd have to steal or hijack another vehicle to complete their journey. The group had discussed at length what they would do, settling on the idea of stealing a car from parking lots or from a dealership, which they'd use, ditching Joseph's car in the process. That was until the group pulled into the rest stop on Interstate 81 near Greenville. The same rest stop which Vidar Lilliard, his wife Delphina and their two children Tabitha and Peter had stopped at to go get supplies and stretch their legs and grab some food. Vidar approached Natasha Cornett and Karen Howell at the rest stop and began to discuss his religious views with the pair, 
which is fairly common with people who practice and are within the Jehovah's Witness faith, is to share your faith with others. His two-year-old son, Peter, accompanied him as he did so, and eventually Joseph Risner and Jason Bryant joined the small group in these discussions about religion. Meanwhile, Delphina and her daughter Tabitha remained seated at a nearby picnic table. After a while of discussing their faiths, the entire group of six and the entire Lilliard family joined together and continued the discussion. It had been Joseph Risner who had shown the most interest in the religious conversations with the Lilliard family, which was something that raised red flags for Natasha Cornett. Natasha would later claim that she knew Joseph wasn't a particularly re religious man, and the fact that he was continuing these religious conversations with the Lilliard family gave her a bad gut feeling. Natasha further claims that she tried to convince Joseph to just leave the family so that they could get on their way, trying to leave the family in peace. But Joseph had insisted. Joseph wanted the family's van, and he was going to take it from them. As the conversation with the Lilliard family progressed, Joseph realised it was now or never, and so he pulled out one of the guns while saying, quote, I hate to do you this way, but we are going to have to take you with us for your van. Vidar pleaded with the group as they were forced at gunpoint into the family's van. Vidar offered them his keys and his wallets in exchange for just letting them stay at the rest stop, but Joseph refused. Joseph forced Vidar into the driver's seat at gunpoint and got into the passenger's seat. Jason Bryant, Karen Hall, and Natasha Cornett got into the back of the van alongside Vidar's wife, Delphina, and their two children, six-year-old Tabitha and two-year-old Peter. Dean Mullins and Crystal Sturgill got into Joseph's car and followed behind the van. In an effort to calm down her children, Delphina began to sing quietly to them, though Jason Bryant turned around and ordered her to stop. Joseph directed Vidar to drive onto the interstate and then take an exit off onto a secluded road at the next exit. What exactly happened next is difficult to validate, as the accounts given by the group were, they were consistent, but contained some discrepancies, likely all of them trying to cover their own asses. At some point along this secluded road, Joseph ordered Vidar to stop the van. It claims that Jason Bryant then took charge of the situation. Joseph, who was still holding the 9mm gun, handed the gun over to Natasha Cornett while saying that he didn't want to continue with this anymore. Natasha claimed that she put the weapon on the floor of the van as Jason Bryant, who had the .25 caliber gun, ordered the Lilliards family out of the van. Jason made the family stand in front of a ditch at gunpoint, all while the family pleaded for their lives. Vidar and Delfina begged the group to spare their children, to leave them unharmed. They promised that they wouldn't contact the authorities, just leave them there and drive off, take everything that they had. Just let them live. Jason Bryant, though, refused their requests. This made Natasha and Karen plead to Jason to let the Lilliards go. They only needed their van, they didn't have to harm them. But Jason again refused this, shouting that the Lilliards would call the police regardless. Natasha turned to the family and promised them that the children would not be harmed, before returning to the van with Karen in tears. Throughout this, Joseph Risner had remained in the van. He was also sobbing. There was a brief moment of silence, and then the sound of rapid gunshots echoed around the secluded hills that they had pulled into. His claims that Vidar was the first person to be shot, though some of the group claimed Delfina was the first. Regardless, both of them were shot numerous times by Jason Bryant. Just seconds after the shooting stopped, Jason Bryant returned to the van and proclaimed, quote, They're still fucking alive. Jason then grabbed the other gun and returned to the family before firing another round of shots. 
During all of this, Jason laughed and joked about the shootings. After Jason was satisfied with his actions, he went to Joseph's car and removed the license plates and registration from the vehicle and ordered Joseph Risner to turn the family's van around. As Joseph was maneuvering the car, he ran over one or more of the bodies that lay in the ditch. The group then drove in the family's van to a gas station where they purchased a road map. They continued on the road until they reached a Waffle House while traveling through Georgia, but left the Waffle House in a hurry when a group of police officers showed up. The group abandoned their plans to travel to New Orleans and decided to drive to Mexico in the hopes of escaping any convictions for the horrors that they had just committed. Bear in mind that they all had not really done much to avoid or deter or prevent these murders. They'd all been complicit in the murders. They'd all run. They'd not notified authorities or tried to get any help. They all were involved and implicated. When they arrived at the border to Mexico and tried to cross into the country, they were denied passage due to the group not having proper identification with them, though they managed to find a way to cross into Mexico. And it was while they were in Mexico that Jason Bryant was shot in the leg and hand. Jason claims that Joseph had told him to take the blame for the shootings as he was the youngest and would receive the lesser sentence. But when Jason hesitated, Joseph shot him in the hand and the leg though the others in the group claimed that the gunshot wounds had been self-inflicted. What the group didn't know was that the area they had gone with the Lilliard family hadn't been as secluded as they believed. Just through the tree line were several houses, and the residents of those houses heard the commotion and gunshots and contacted the authorities. When the police had arrived at the crime scene, thinking they were responding to just a simple disturbance call, they found both Vidar and Delphina Lilliard, six-year-old Tabitha and two-year-old Peter, shot and abandoned in a ditch along the secluded road. Vidar, Delphina and Tabitha were pronounced dead on the scene, but two-year-old Peter somehow managed to survive the attack. He was rushed to the hospital where he spent a long time in intensive care. Peter suffered severe spinal trauma and was left half-blind. Two days after the shooting, on the 8th of April 1997, the group of six were stopped by the Mexican authorities. The group claimed to the authorities that they were lost and needed help, but the authorities ordered them out of the van and decided to conduct a search of the vehicle. The authorities found a knife and a photo album belonging to the Lilliard family in the van, and several other possessions of the Lilliard family on the group of teens' person, and so ordered the group to re-enter the United States. American police officers searched the group when they arrived at the border and took them to an Arizona jail. All of them were arrested in connection to the murder of the Lilliard family. The group were then moved to Tennessee, where they were all charged with three counts of first-degree murder and one count of attempted first-degree murder. Natasha, Karen, Joseph, Dean, Crystal and Jason all pled guilty on the charges brought against them. The sentence hearing was conducted in February of 1998 and lasted one week. All of the defendants, bar Dean Mullins and Crystal Sturgill, testified at the hearing. A forensic pathologist further testified at the hearing to detail the extent of the injuries that the family had sustained. Vidal Lilliard, who was 34 years old when he was murdered, has sustained a total of six gunshot wounds, one to the right side of his head and five to the chest. Delphina Lilliard, who had been 28 years old when she was murdered, was shot a total of eight times. The first shot shattered the bone in her left arm, and the second shattered the thigh of her left leg. The remaining six shots were fired at Delphina's torso as she lay on her back on the ground. Six-year-old Tabitha had been shot once in the side of her head, which caused immediate brain death. Two-year-old Peter was shot twice, one shot entering behind his right ear and exiting near his right eye, 
and the second shot entering through his back and exiting through his chest. Peter remained in intensive care for 17 days before being transferred to a rehabilitation centre in Knoxville. Now, a media circus launched immediately with this case, with satanic panic becoming front and centre. Natasha Cornett had told the media that she was the daughter of Satan and claims that the group regularly held satanic rituals and would drink each other's blood, though this is believed to be untrue. The group of teens were branded as satanic by the press, Satan worshippers who the media stated wanted to take the lives of an innocent, God-loving family. Every member of the group of six were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole in March of 1998. By pleading guilty to the charges, they all avoided receiving the death penalty. Though it is important to remember that the two minors, Jason Bryant and Karen Howells, were not eligible for the death penalty due to their age. The main shooter in the killings was not determined in the court of law, despite testimony to states that Jason Bryant had been the main perpetrator. Peter, who stabilised by the end of April 1997, ultimately went to live in Sweden to be raised by his aunt and her family. It was established in 2007, when Peter turned 12 years old, that he had difficulty walking due to the injuries that he had sustained. And by 2017, Peter had finished his education and had begun to look for work in the technology field. I didn't want to delve too deep into the satanic panic that surrounded this case, as it honestly feels disrespectful to the victims within this case. And as there already wasn't too much information available about the Lillard family, I didn't wish to cloud their stories and voices with such nonsense. And that's everything that I have for you in this case. Make sure you subscribe to this channel and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time I post a brand new true crime video just like this one. Be sure to follow me over on Twitter and Instagram. My handles are on screen right now. And if you have a case that you wish for me to cover on this channel, then send in your case submissions at requestacase.com. And with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case. If you or someone you know has been affected by issues covered in our programming, including this episode, then please use the link in the description for information, advice and support.